0: Welcome back Crimeaholics, it's your host Holly. This case is one that I previously recorded and it was up for just a very short time because I was not completely happy with how it turned out. So here I am, I'm going to re-record this case so you may have heard it the first round. Before we dive into today's case, I do want to give a forewarning that this case may be tough for some to listen to. This case involves child abuse and murder. Listener discretion is advised, and I will completely understand if you skip over this episode. Today's case comes out of Australia. I know we heavily focus on cases that come from the U.S., but we try and spread the wealth on stories from other countries. We have listeners in so many other countries, which is so cool, and though I don't always hear about cases from other countries, I do try and find some to cover. If you are in another country, or even in the U.S. for that matter, and have a case that you would like to suggest, in the description of this episode, you should be able to find a link that will take you to a form to fill out. We love to cover cases that you guys want to hear. I also want to say that I try my hardest to make sure I pronounce the names and places correctly on the cases that I cover, but I am human and sometimes make mistakes, or sometimes my accent and or the way I was raised has me saying things differently from some other people, so please forgive me if I do not properly pronounce something right or right in your eyes that was a big issue with my first go at recording this case. So let's go ahead and jump in to today's episode. This is the story of the tragic murder of Daniel (music) Morcombe. On December 19, 1989, Denise and Bruce Morcombe welcomed two new little bundles of joy to their family. They introduced their eldest son, Dean, to his baby brothers, Bradley and Daniel. The family was officially complete, and the three boys grew up having an incredible life. In a 60 Minutes Australia documentary on Daniel, they played clips from his childhood. He and his brothers could be seen playing outside, swimming in a pool, laughing, and smiling. In one brief clip, you can see Daniel with a face covered in what appears to be melted chocolate ice cream. And I cannot help but think about my own children and the memories that we are making as a family. The Morecombe family very much mirrors my own, which makes this case even harder for me to handle. They lived in a place called Palmwoods, which is on the Sunshine Coast of Queensland, Australia. Growing up, Daniel loved animals, and in many of the pictures that I saw of him, you could see him with different animals, and he had dreamed of becoming a veterinarian. On December seventh, two 2003, Daniel was 13 years old, and he was home with his older brother Dean and his twin brother Bradley. Their parents were out and about, and Daniel had wanted to go to a nearby shopping mall called Sunshine Plaza. Daniel had wanted to get a haircut, and he also wanted to do some Christmas shopping for his family. Now, going to the Sunshine Plaza alone wasn't out of the ordinary for Daniel and Bradley. According to a court document, this was something that Daniel and his twin brother would do every four to five weeks. The boys would walk down to the Keel Mountain Road underpass, which was an unofficial bus stop, and catch a ride to the plaza. They would be there for a few hours and then come home. However, on December 7th, Bradley didn't want to go with Daniel, so Daniel went alone. He walked down to the Kill Mountain Road underpass and began waiting for the bus to come along. The bus was scheduled to come around 1:30 p.m., and the drive to the plaza was about 15 to 20 minutes. But by 1:35 p.m., the bus still hadn't come. Apparently not far up the road, the bus had some mechanical issues and was broken down on the side of the road. There was a replacement bus that was sent out, but this bus was instructed to only pick up those who were on the broken down bus and then to take them to the plaza without stopping for any other passengers. But there was a second shuttle bus that was coming just three minutes behind the replacement bus to pick up those passengers that were waiting at stops. So Daniel is waiting at the stop when the replacement bus goes by at 2.15 p.m. He tries to wave the driver down and the driver does in fact see him and he kind of does this motion behind him trying to tell Daniel that another bus was coming. The driver actually radios back to the shuttle bus to let them know that there is a kid waiting for the bus at the Keel Mountain Road underpass. Those three minutes go by, and when the shuttle bus arrives at the underpass, Daniel was no longer there. Around 4.30 p.m., Bruce and Denise arrive back home to find that only Bradley was there. They asked where his brothers were, and he replied that Dean had gone to a friend's house and that Daniel had left for the Sunshine Plaza about three and a half hours before, and he still hadn't returned home. Instantly, Denise and Bruce felt uneasy about the fact that he wasn't back yet. This wasn't the typical routine that would happen when Daniel would go to Sunshine Plaza. So they decided to immediately call the bus station to see if they could get some sort of information. They were told about the whole bus fiasco with the broken down bus and how an additional bus was sent out. The Morecombs kind of assumed that through the whole bus situation that maybe Daniel was stuck stranded somewhere or maybe he was just walking home. So they decided to head out driving the route that Daniel would have taken to see if they could find him which, of course, he was nowhere to be found. By 7.30 p.m., when Daniel still hadn't returned home, they drove to the police station to officially report Daniel as missing. Unfortunately, the Morecombs were told that there wasn't much that could be done at that point in time and that they should just go home and wait for him to show up. And they also were instructed to call around to see if he had stopped off somewhere to hang out with some friends and forgot to call home. They were told that if come morning, Daniel still wasn't home, then they could come back to the station. Daniel's parents reluctantly went home, despite the pit in their stomachs telling them that this wasn't Daniel running off and forgetting to call home. They spent all night waiting on the couch for Daniel to walk through the door. I cannot imagine how agonizing that wait was. Watching day turn to night, seconds slowly ticking by into minutes, minutes into hours, and night back into day again, all the while staring at the door. My heart breaks just thinking about the pain and utter fear they must have felt during that time. When morning broke, they waited until 7.30 a.m. on December 8th to go back to the police station and officially file a missing persons report. Daniel is officially listed as a missing person, and the Morcombs begin contacting all of the news and media outlets trying to get any and all information out there, in hopes that someone had seen something. The police got in contact with individuals who had been riding on the bus that day, as well as the bus driver that was on the replacement bus. All of the individuals do recall seeing Daniel waiting at the bus stop, as well as another individual waiting as well. They described this man as someone who was unkempt, real thin-looking. He had a goatee and a tattoo on his shoulder. The police began a huge search for Daniel, bringing out helicopters to canvass the area as well as trained dogs. They went as far as placing a mannequin at the bus stop wearing a similar outfit as Daniel was the last time he was seen. And they did this in hopes that someone would see it and then would remember something and that it would just spark a memory for them and come forward with that information. Which this is something that I personally have never seen done before, and I have to say it is quite brilliant because the police began getting flooded with tips. Lots of people who called in stated that they saw Daniel standing at the stop waiting. He had been there for at least 45 minutes, so lots of cars had passed him that afternoon. But many of the people who called in also reported the same man that the bus driver and other passengers had stated was waiting for the bus as well. Some of the individuals who called in also had reported several different cars that had been seen in the area. Some people had said there was a blue sedan that was parked near the bus stop, while others had reported that it was parked up the road a little bit. One woman even reported seeing a blue sedan speeding down the road and then it swerved around her car. She said that it had appeared that someone was in the backseat of the car fighting or punching the front seat of the car. Then there was other people who had mentioned a white 4x4 in the area of the bus stop as well. So there's lots of good potential witnesses out there and the media was sharing all the info on the local news, which eventually generated more national attention. People were coming out of the woodwork to say that they had seen Daniel that day. However, one person never surfaced. Who was that that was waiting at the bus stop that day? And why, with all of this media attention, had he not come forward to say that he was that person? Clearly, this is a red flag, and investigators also felt that this person was someone they had to speak with. During searches for missing children, it is not uncommon for authorities to bust out all cards in their search, and that includes pulling up the local sex offender registry list and at the time that Daniel went missing, there was a total of 39 registered sex offenders who lived near the vicinity of the bus stop. The police worked their way through the list questioning every single one of them, all of which seemed to have some sort of alibi and weren't really suspicious to the police. The police were at a standstill with no leads leading to one person, and literally no evidence of Daniel was recovered. Despite the efforts of law enforcement, the family, and practically all of Australia, Daniel remained missing for years. Years after Daniel's disappearance, the government had put up a $250,000 reward for information leading to Daniel. And then private donors across the country donated also to hopefully help generate new leads. And they had a total of $750,000 donated, making it a total of $1 million up for grabs for information leading to Daniel. And that money remained untouched for six years. On May 31st, 2009, the $750,000 that was raised by private donors expired, which left only the $250,000 still available. It was around this time that the news outlets began reporting of a potential suspect in the case. A man named Douglas Jackway was a known pedophile with a long history of some awful, awful things to children. He also seemed to match the description of the man that people had seen. Douglas was lean, had facial hair, and had tattoos, one specifically being on his shoulder. His first arrest was just at the age of 14 when he had raped a nine-year-old girl. This dude's record is so long and extensive that it is clear as day that he has no business being on the outside of prison walls. According to the Courier-Mail, one psychologist described him as being a diabolical psychopath. So red flags were flying for investigators that this could potentially be their guy. And at the time that Daniel went missing, Douglas Jackway had just been released from prison the month before after serving time for attempted rape in 1995 on a nine-year-old boy also come to find out Douglas had purchased a blue sedan after being released from prison despite not having a driver's license. And remember, witnesses who saw Daniel waiting at the bus stop reported seeing a blue sedan in the area. After Douglas became a person of interest for police, they actually decided to try the mannequin trick again. They placed a mannequin that looked like Douglas at the bus stop and hoped that it would generate more leads and tips. Which despite it being six years since Daniel had gone missing, they received over 300 calls, all of which led nowhere. And the police were unable to link Douglas, despite his awful record, to Daniel's disappearance. The police, as well as the Morecambe family, did everything that they could to follow up on any and all leads. Over 20,000 leads were looked into, and over 10,000 people were interviewed in total of over the course of their investigation, and still nothing ever surfaced of Daniel. In October of 2010, after the demands of Daniel's family, an inquest took place. This inquest lasted until April of 2011, and they basically brought in any individual who was known to be bad in the area. Over 35 individuals were brought in to be questioned. All of these individuals were considered suspects in the police's eyes, all of which were individuals who were most likely to have done something to Daniel. During this inquest, one of the individuals had confessed to stuffing Daniel's body into a barrel and dropping it into the Brisbane River. Like all of the leads before that the police had got, they investigated this one and sent in a dive team out to scour the river in hopes of finding this barrel. Sadly, this person was only making these claims for clout, and they were deemed false claims. During the inquest, there was one individual that completely gave a bad gut feeling to Denise, and this man was named Brett Peter Cowan. Not only did he give her a bad feeling, but he also matched the description of the man seen at the bus stop with Daniel. Brett Cowan was an extremely bad man, and his record is also very long, and the majority of his charges are for child sex crimes. I don't want to get too in-depth on the severity of his crimes because it's extremely hard to read and to listen to. And I know most people struggle with hearing child sex crimes, which I do as well. But if you're interested in knowing just how diabolical this man is, just do a quick Google search and you will be able to read his awful, awful history. I will say, however, at the time of the inquest, he was 44 years old and he had admitted that by the time that he was 18, he had already preyed on up to 30 children. In the early 1990s, Brett did in fact abduct a young boy, violently molested him, leaving him with a punctured lung and left for dead. The fact that this man was ever released from prison the many times that he had been blows my mind, especially after what he did to that child. According to abc.net.au, Brett Cowan had been a suspect early on in the investigation and was first interviewed two weeks after Daniel had gone missing. He actually had owned a white 4x4, which remember was one of the cars mentioned that had been seen around the bus stop. He also matches the physical description, but he had an alibi. He claimed that on that day, he spent his morning outside working in the garden and around 1.30 p.m., he left the house to pick up some mulch, returning home by 2.30. He told police that the route he took to pick up the mulch drove past the bus stop and he remembered seeing the broken down bus. When he was initially interviewed, he fully cooperated with police, allowing them to take his DNA sample and to do a forensic search of his white 4x4. Nothing in his vehicle was found, and police were able to talk with the person who Brett picked up mulch from. But they did, however, learn that this trip for the mulch was quick. The person stated that Brett Cowan was only there for maybe five minutes getting the mulch before leaving, so there was a gap in time that was unaccounted for, but police couldn't actually pin anything on him. He was interviewed again in 2005 and one more time in 2006. In his 2006 interview, the police kind of put the pressure on him about that unaccounted for time between picking up the mulch and getting home. Brett admitted that he met with a woman named Sandra, who happened to be his drug dealer, and he didn't want to admit that because he didn't want to get her into trouble. Police interviewed her, and she couldn't give them any details. Too much time had passed, and she couldn't remember if she had seen Brett on that day, and if she had, she couldn't remember what time. During the inquest, Brett had said that he had nothing to do with Daniel's disappearance. It was also during this same inquest that the police brought Sandra in to question her again. This was the best thing investigators could have done because it was the first crack in Brett's alibi. Sandra told them that she and her boyfriend always visited a casino on most Sundays. She apparently had some sort of membership card or frequent visitor card that ultimately logged every single time that she was at the casino. Sandra actually took it upon herself to go to the casino and have them check the timestamp from when she was there or if she was there at all. On December 3rd, 2003, Sandra was inside the casino playing the games between 1.30pm and 2.30pm, which is the time frame that Brett had claimed that he was out getting mulch and stopping to see her to purchase drugs. So because the police didn't have anything solid on Brett yet, he was able to go home and go about his life. However, the police were beginning to plot a very elaborate plan to hopefully get the info they needed for an arrest. On a flight home to Perth, which is where Brett now lived and where he had moved to after Daniel had gone missing, Brett meets a man named Joe Emery, and the two begin striking up conversation and find out that they both have a lot in common. Joe Emery, was also a career criminal. After getting back to Perth, Brett is completely on high alert because he learned about Sandra's casino loyalty card on the news. I can imagine that he felt like the police were closing in on him and were practically breathing down his neck. So what does he decide to do? He goes and legally changes his name. And I'm not sure if this is how he thought that he could evade police or what exactly he was thinking, but I do find that odd. But what is even more odd is the name that he picked out for himself. His name had been legally changed to Shadow Nunya Hunter. And I can imagine the face y'all are making right now listening to this new name because my face was the same WTF look. Not only did he change his name, but Mr. Shadow Nunya Hunter ends up getting fired from his job and becomes somewhat desperate for money. He decides to get back into contact with Joe Emery that he met on that flight to see if he could join Joe's criminal gang. Joe kind of takes Brett under his wing and begins showing him the ropes of this gang. He introduces him to one of the higher-ups in the gang who goes by the name of Fitzy. And Brett is given little jobs and assignments to gain the trust of fellow members and the trust of the big boss named Arnold. This gang really drilled home to all of its members that trust and loyalty is the most important thing to achieve in order to carry out these different jobs. Brett was working super hard trying to gain the trust by doing jobs like running drugs, picking up and exchanging guns, stealing cars, he'd move money for the boss, he would threaten and bribe people... Brett was also beginning to get paid really well from Fitzy. He was going out and living a really grand and lavish life with expensive cars and clothes and living like a high roller. Little did Brett Cowan know, the jobs he was doing and the people he was trying to impress was all part of a huge undercover operation known as Vista. This style of police work is a little bit controversial and calls on a lot of money and resources to pull off. This style of police work is known as the Mr. Big technique or the Canadian technique. According to the Brisbane Times, undercover police groom a suspect to convince them they have what it takes to be a part of a successful crime gang with broad networks and rich rewards. But they're told that the gang is only as strong as the weakest link and honesty is all. If you tell them you're dirt, they'll make it go away. This technique is very popular in Canada, and it is actually illegal to execute in the United States. Again, there is a lot of controversy around whether this tactic can generate a truthful confession, and if you want to know more about it, I highly suggest doing a Google search on the Mr. Big technique. So because the police had zero physical evidence that Brett was actually involved and were going off of just circumstantial evidence, they really needed a confession from Brett himself to be able to get the arrest they so desperately wanted to get for the Morcombs. On August 4th, 2011, Fitzy picks up Brett for a meeting with an individual by the name of Craig. And Craig was supposedly this corrupt police officer who worked with the crime gang and was all in on their criminal dealings. Craig was also apparently the person who had the inside information and would give the gang a heads up if something was coming their way. At their meeting, Craig informed Fitzy and Brett that there is a subpoena for Brett to appear at a new inquest about Daniel's disappearance. At this point, Brett was adamant to Fitzy and Craig that it's no big deal. He had nothing to do with Daniel's disappearance. And Fitzy just keeps telling him that he has to be honest with them. They have a way of cleaning up messes and that if it was true and he wasn't being honest about it, nothing can come back on their group which Brett at this point wasn't really concerned about being caught by the police. He felt they had nothing on him that could really get him for Daniel. But he was worried about the fact that what happened in his past could quite potentially ruin his future with the gang. After the meeting with Craig, there is a word of a huge job coming in that will generate a whole bunch of money for Brett. On August 9th, Fitzy picks up Brett and they're headed to go do a job when they receive a call from the big, big boss, Arnold. Apparently Arnold wants to have a meeting with Brett and this is a huge deal because he's the huge boss of this whole entire gang. So they turn around and head to go meet Arnold. Arnold. When they get there, Arnold tells him he's really impressed with all of the work he has been doing for the gang and he wants him to carry out this big million dollar ecstasy job, which would have a super high payout for Brett. But he had some information that came up about Brett's past that needs to be sorted out before he could be trusted with the job. In this meeting, Arnold tells Brett he doesn't care what he has done. He's heard a lot of real bad crap, and he has dealt with it all and made it all go away for other members. But in order to make it go away for Brett, Brett needed to be honest and tell Arnold the truth. And again, this gang revolves around that trust and loyalty of its members, which Arnold reminded Brett. This conversation with Brett spanned over 45 minutes, and in the description of this episode, I will have the link to the actual audio confession of Brett. In there, you can listen to Arnold, who is obviously the undercover cop, coax this confession from Brett. Pretty much in the conversation, though, Arnold just keeps reassuring Brett that he doesn't care what he has done. He doesn't have an issue with his past, but he needs to know if there is a body they need to move and need his upfront honesty about what happened so they can make it go away. Brett denies it until Arnold puts the lien on him saying that if anything comes back on the gang, he will drop him. Brett loved being a part of this gang so much, and he felt like it was his calling and the job he was meant to do that he felt scared at the possibility of being cast out. So he finally decides to confess. He confesses that on his way back from picking up mulch from his friend's house, he spotted Daniel waiting at the bus stop. He decided to drive into a church parking lot and leave his white 4x4 and walk to the bus stop to pretend that he was waiting for the bus as well. They see the first bus go by and the driver signaling there was another one on the way. That was when Brett decided to act. Brett approaches Daniel and tells him that he's going to the Sunshine Plaza and that he can give him a ride in his car. Daniel, being the sweet and trusting kid he was, willingly accepted the ride from Brett and walked to his car. He got into the passenger seat, and instead of going the quick ride to the plaza, Brett drives Daniel an hour and a half away to an abandoned house that he knew of. When they get there, Brett asks Daniel if he wants to go inside for a drink of water which I can imagine at this point, Daniel knew something was extremely off, but he goes inside with Brett anyways. Brett confesses that when he got inside, he began to make the move to pull Daniel's pants down so he could molest him, but Daniel panicked and began resisting saying, oh no, 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 no which this made Brett panic, so he strangled Daniel from behind with his arm. Brett then stated that he took Daniel's body and put it in the back of his car and drove 150 meters to a secluded wooded area, where he then dumped his body at the base of an embankment at an old sand mining pit and covered his body with leaves and branches. He had also stripped Daniel of all of his clothes and dumped those in a nearby creek. Brett explained how he went back a week later with a shovel to properly bury Daniel, but when he arrived, he had already pretty much been consumed by the elements and wild animals. He, however, did find some bones, so he took a shovel and smashed the bones into various different pieces, and then threw some dirt on top of it. So because this is just a verbal confession, and the police don't have a body, they can't really arrest just off of this confession. One of the reasons this tactic is so controversial is because anyone can confess to anything, And because Brett thought he was really involved in this fake criminal gang and he wants to obviously keep his place, he could just be confessing to something that isn't true just so he can still remain a part of the gang. So Arnold tells Brett that he is going to go back to Queensland with Fitzy to show him where he disposed of the body. He also tells him that you're going to show them everything and then they will deal with it from there. Without hesitation, Brett flies back to Queensland with Fitzy and another gang member and takes them directly to the spot he described to Arnold. On their way through the wooded area, Fitzy and the other gang member are secretly marking the path so they could get back to it for further investigation. When they return to the car, the police were there waiting to arrest Brett. They arrest him, and all this jackass can do is smile. He declines being interviewed, and he is officially charged with murder, kidnapping, deprivation of liberty, indecent treatment of a child, and mistreatment of a corpse. Police scoured the area where Brett had taken them, and it took them four whole days before they found Daniel's shoe. They then found bone fragments that were DNA tested and confirmed to be a 100% match as belonging to Daniel Morcombe. Inside the nearby creek, they were also able to uncover a belt, underwear, and shorts that had belonged to Daniel as well. When Brett first appeared in court, he pleaded not guilty. Initially, at the beginning of the court process, they had refused the media to release the name of Brett Cowan, but the Morcombs fought back. They wanted his name and the story to be put out there in case anyone else that had been a victim of Brett Cowan could come forward. The defense for Brett claimed that it was never Brett who harmed Daniel, that it was Douglas Jackway all along who murdered this boy. They also argued that his confession was a false confession in order to keep his place in the gang. But that couldn't explain how Brett knew exactly where the body was and where the clothing of Daniel would ultimately be found. The jury was not convinced either, and on March 13, 2014, after eight hours of deliberation, they came back with a guilty verdict in the murder of Daniel Morcombe. This justice was served 11 years after Daniel had first initially went missing. They sentenced Brett Peter Cowan to life in prison with the possibility of parole in 20 years, which I am going to say what I know all of you are thinking, and that is that this POS does not deserve to ever step foot outside of prison ever again. Since being in prison, Brett Peter Cowan has been dished some good old-fashioned prison justice as well, including an incident that happened in 2016 where another inmate threw boiling water onto Brett, causing burns to his head, chest, and legs, which required medical attention. He then was assaulted again in 2018 by another inmate receiving superficial wounds to both his neck and ear. Though I hate to say that anything good could ever come from these horrific disappearances and murders, the Morcombe family really took their tragedy and turned it into something positive that they can do for others. They did not let their baby boy die in vain, and they launched the Daniel Morecombe Foundation. The Daniel Morecombe Foundation provides personal child safety education to children and young people to prevent abuse and to promote lifelong health and well-being. They support educators, parents, and caregivers through the provisions of resources and education and also directly support young victims of crime. They also started Daniel's Day, which is Australia's largest child safety education and awareness day. It is held annually on the last Friday of October. They always promote wearing red on that day for Daniel. Daniel was last seen wearing a red t-shirt. You can check out their website at danielmorcombe.com.au. There is also a donate button if you would like to donate towards their cause. Of course, the link to the Daniel Morcombe's website will be in the description of this episode as well, so you can check it out. My heart goes out to the entire Morcombe family and all of Australia, honestly. This case was super hard for them to handle, and I am so glad that despite it taking so long, justice was finally received and Daniel could properly be laid to rest. Crimeaholics, if you're not already a part of our private Facebook group, make sure you find us by searching Crimeaholics Podcast Discussion Group. In there, we share all pictures and information pertaining to the cases that we cover, and we also encourage all of our members to share all things true crime. Be sure to also follow us on Instagram at Crimeaholics.podcast, and if you would like more true crime content, you can follow me on TikTok at the same username of Crimeaholics.podcast. Lastly, if you wish to follow myself personally on Instagram, you can find me by searching Crimeaholly. Crimeaholics, that is all for this week's case. Kinsey will be back on Monday for another Missing Monday. But until then, have a safe weekend and always remember to be aware and take care.